Radio Network, AM 1340, WTAN. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Let me tell you about my company, Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. I have over 35 years experience with classic, vintage sport and racing cars. I do appraisals, consulting, and pre-purchase inspections. Before you buy your next rare classic, the car of your dreams, give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsport, 727-541-1741. Also, due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, AM 1340. The Gumball Rally, starring Michael Sarazen, will continue in a moment. Tuesday, Starsky's girl is an eyewitness to a picture-perfect murder. Starsky and Hutch. Tuesday on Happy Days. Fonzie is secretly married. What? He has a kid and everything. Is Fonzie a father? Then, Laverne and Shirley get game show fever. This is the second best thing I've ever felt. And Jack and Chrissy have the right idea when they find Mrs. Roper with the wrong man. Then, Elaine throws a come-as-you-are party, but the guests are high society. Aren't there a lot of phonies here? On Taxi! Tuesday night, starting at 8. I dare you to knock this off. I dare you to compare anybody's batteries, anybody's, with alkaline power cells. And try to beat them for long life. You know what? You can't. When you want long-lasting energy, you can't buy a longer-lasting all-purpose power system than gold, red, and black alkaline power cells from EverReady. The power cell that dares to compare. Come on, I dare you. We continue now with My Name is Nobody. Hi, this is Nick Mason from Pink Floyd, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Welcome, you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google Tantalk, 1340.com, and you can see us live. You can see me live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, golfstreammotorsports.com, and you can find out all about us. And if you miss any of our past shows, check out our archive page, Nostalgic Radio and Cars, also located on our website. Good evening, Tommy! Good evening, Robert! Yeah, my main man over there, Tommy. Without him, yeah, I would just be sitting here in the studio talking to myself. But thanks to Tommy, the whole world can find out all about us and listening to us. They could even be sitting on the moon. If they have Wi-Fi on the moon, on that big piece of, is it green cheese, blue cheese, some sort of cheese? Uh, at least that's according to Tom and Tom and Jerry. Uh, you can hear all about us. Now, we've got an exciting show for you tonight because uh, this is a show I've been looking forward to for quite a while. Mainly because I grew up in the uh, in the motel business, and uh, I grew up in California, Northern Cal. You hear me talking about it all the time. But we moved to Florida in the early '70s. But one of the things we're going to be talking about tonight is roadside attractions. And in this particular case, uh, our guest coming on a little bit later is, wrote a book in uh, talking about that, and it's called "Roadside Attractions Before Disney." So. When, we, uh, when I moved to Florida in 71, Disney was still under construction, and guess what? That's what you did. You drove around. But, but roadside attractions weren't just in Florida. They were all over there. Every state had them. And, of course, California, where I come from, there was lots of them. Arizona, we used to go to Arizona all the time. Lots of them in Arizona, lots of them in Nevada, and uh, pretty cool stuff. And all across the country, every state's got something that's unique. And uh, I remember driving up to Chicago because my relatives were up there. And, uh, you know, a roadside attraction along the way on I-75 when you got to Chattanooga was Rock City. I don't know if you guys remember that, but that was pretty cool. And then you had Stone Mountain in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, a number of them along the way. But those are the two in particular that I remember, not to mention all the stuff that was going on in Florida. So I look forward to talking about that. Uh, if you want to find out where all the car shows are, 
Don't forget to check out flacarshows.com. You can find out about all the car shows taking place here in the state of Florida. This weekend, well, one of the things that I may be going to is uh, Sebring. This past weekend, they had uh, the HSR, Historic Sports Car Racing, had uh, their event down there. It's called the Spring Fling at uh, Sebring International Raceway. But this coming weekend is the uh, Ferrari Challenge. The week after that, I think, is, uh, or two weeks after that, uh, our friends at Dimmit Auto Group and McLaren, they have a uh, track day as well uh, at Sebring. Sebring is obviously not just a racetrack, but it's uh, a lot of track events going on there. Uh, I think two weeks ago they had Chin Motorsports was down there. So, you know, if you want to go fast and drive a cool car and have fun, but you don't want to be a professional race car driver, just kind of an amateur, you can do that. Uh, if you want to take it to the next level, you join ACCA. If you want to take it to the next level, you join HSR or HSVRA. Uh, and if you're real serious, you join IMSA. And uh, you become a serious professional race car driver, and hopefully you get a lot of, a lot of sponsorship money because it takes a lot of money to race these days. Not like in the old days when you could just uh, you know slap a car together, throw a roll bar in it, a couple seatbelts, fire extinguisher, uh, say, Hail Mary, hope your engine didn't blow up, and you can go out and have fun. And uh, which is kind of what drag racing is like, you know, drag racing you can still do like down here at Sunshine or I guess they call it uh, Showtime Speedway. You know, you can just kind of run what you brung type deal. So racing doesn't have to be expensive. You just have to find the right organization you can kind of team up with and show up there. And uh, you know, if you provide you make uh, your car safe and roadworthy because you're on, you're not the only one on the track. You're sharing the track with other guys. You know, so we want to make sure that you uh, your car is uh, properly equipped and. You know, it can go as well as stop, which is very important. And handle. It's got a handle, too. That's important. But anyway, so, uh, and then I think in two weeks is also down in West Palm Beach is Barrett-Jackson. The uh, the biggie, obviously, is in Scottsdale, Arizona. But Barrett-Jackson in West Palm Beach is a pretty good event. It's uh, grown quite a bit now. I think it's, geez, it's probably got to be going on 10, 12 years now. And uh, so that's uh, that's on their schedule. But anyway, if you want to find out where all the stuff is, definitely check out flacarshows.com. Now, having said that, I think, uh, what did we do this weekend? Well, this weekend I actually went to a couple car shows. And uh, one in particular was uh, Monday night, the first Monday of every month. It happened to be April Fool's Day. That's, it's April Fool's Day for the Chevrolet guys because <coughs> they were trying to find some place to go hang out. But us four guys, we were hanging out at Bitburger down in St. Pete. So they had a pretty good turnout there. A good mix of uh, vintage cars, uh, 70s, 80s cars, 90s cars, and obviously 2000 cars, and some of the late, 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 late cars. You know, the... Uh, the new Mustang, 2015 to 2019 Mustang, is pretty bad, pretty wicked little car. And that Coyote motor, that's easily finding its way into uh, some of these new um, vintage restorations, you know, or these resto mods. And I wasn't real warm and fuzzy with the idea of a, of a resto mod, but I kind of get it because I'm running into it more and more. I haven't, I've appraised a few of those, but not a lot of them. But, I, but the Coyote motor is definitely the way to go. I mean, you can buy the motor, you can buy the six-speed transmission, they got an eight-speed out there, there's all kinds of cool stuff going out there. You can buy the computer, the harness, the whole nine yards, so you can just retrofit it in just about any car you can think of. In fact, a gentleman I met over the weekend has got a 65 Ford truck, and uh, that's exactly what he's doing. He's gonna rust a mod that thing, and he's gonna put a Coyote motor in it, so pretty cool. Let's see. Thursday, I went to. I uh, actually I stopped by our friends. In fact, if you follow us on Facebook, you'll see that I, I kind of get around just a little bit. But I was at the local McLaren dealership because I'm actually appraising a McLaren. It's called the McLaren Senna. I think there's only a few in the country at the moment. And uh, so it's unlike the P1. It's a normally aspirated car. The uh, internal name is P15. But the Senna is uh, to commemorate Ayrton Senna, who was one of the best Formula One drivers out of the out of the, let's just say, uh, within the recent decades. And uh, so it's, the car is designed to commemorate him and named after him because he raced for McLaren, obviously, in Formula One. But it's a pretty interesting car. It's uh, pretty, it's just deep in the seven figures, so a uh, pretty cool piece. But I wanted to get some information on it, so I went down to uh, see my good friend Matthew Jones at McLaren at Dimmit Auto Group down there. And uh, so he spent some time with me, and we looked at some of the new cars that they had there. And uh, McLarens, I'm getting warm and fuzzy to those. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Even though I like, uh, I'm a Porsche guy, you know, I mean, through and through, deep down inside, uh, I got to, you know, um, I kind of, McLaren's a heck of a car. It really is. For the money, bang for the buck, fast, safe, cool. If you get a chance, stop in there, just roam around. You know, they got some pretty neat stuff down there. And, of course, every uh, third Saturday of the month, um, they have a cars and coffee dinner, and they really have cars and coffee, and they really have coffee, and they really have donuts. So that's uh, on my list of things to do, as well as the Dupont Registry. So everybody goes to the Dupont Registry first, and then they head on over to Dupont or to uh, Dimmit. 
any rate, uh, also I'm doing a couple appraisals on some Ferraris. And uh, so I got a new respect for Ferraris. Interesting cars, and we'll talk about those sometime. Uh, interesting how they're, they're how they how these manufacturers, particularly Ferrari, protects their brand. And there's a, an, 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 I thought there was brand loyalty with Porsche. Uh, same thing with Ford and Shelby and Camaro and Corvette and all that stuff. But the brand loyalty with Ferrari is very very unique. It's very very special. And uh, I'm learning more and more about that and finding out more and more about that. So, and I understand it. I mean, they're very very expensive cars, and there's a reason for that. At any rate. Um, what else? Okay, so I went to a Quaker Steak and Lube, did that on Thursday after I left the McLaren store, and uh, there was a guy there. You know, I mean, I don't go there too often, but uh, when I do get a chance, you know, I kind of hang out a little bit. But there was a car there that caught my attention. It was a 64 Galaxy station wagon. Had a big block in it, and I thought, well, that's kind of cool. You know, it was pretty much plain Jane. wasn't anything fancy. And then I said, hopefully whoever owns this car has got a, you know, put a four-speed behind it, you know, a four-hooker. Sure enough, I looked inside, and it's got a faux on the flow. And uh, I thought that was pretty cool. And so I talked to the guy, and apparently the car was built in Canada, in Ontario, Canada. So Windsor, which is right across the Detroit line there, uh, on the other side of the Reaver. And uh, but what was interesting is it had a, a 584-something-something DSO. Now, 84 is a special DSO, which if you had a special car like a Shelby or something like that, or a, or a uh, central office garage, that's what Ford called it. Um, special production car, unique, something, you know, an oddball deal that somebody specially ordered that would be an 84 DSO. Well, this one had 584, so 84 was in it, but the 5 and the, and the last digit was different. But then the car was shipped to Virginia. So I'm speculating because the car came from the factory with a 390, a 3-speed, plus an overdrive. So a 3-speed on the column, okay? So I'm thinking, hmm, okay. Now, I know that the moonshine, the, the revenue cars, as they called them back in the day. A lot of them were Fairlanes with police interceptor engines in them. So it's very possible they ordered a station wagon so they could carry around all the tools so they could go around busting up all the shines, stills. And it um, could have been in Virginia. You know, that was kind of probably uh, kind of like the going on back in the day. So, But it was a real interesting car. So the guy got the car, restored the car. It was actually a pretty solid car to begin with. You can see it was clean and straight. And it was a factory black car. So eh, maybe that's what the story was. But this gentleman was really cool. And uh, he also owned a Ford dealership up in Ontario, which was kind of neat. And, um, and uh, so we kind of hit it off a little bit. So we're in contact, and uh, he's got uh, a, a really neat collection of cars. He lives down here part-time, lives in Canada the rest of the time. So every year he brings something really neat and wicked down. So with a little luck, uh, we'll see that Black Galaxy long roof running around town. On that note, uh, oh, yeah, we were talking a little bit. And this is how small the world is. So I said, uh, so if you're in Ontario, I got a friend of mine or a guy that I met probably in the last 20 years. I haven't seen him in a while. But he used to come down here and vintage race all the time. His name was Mike Douglas. And uh, he had a Ford or Lincoln Mercury dealership someplace up in Canada. And the guy goes, sure, I know Mike. Mike and I are good friends. He's on the other side of Toronto. So it's kind of be like, you know, we're in the Tampa Bay area. So this would be in Clearwater. And on the other side of Tampa would be his dealership. So it's interesting how you, it's small the world is. You just don't know who you're going to meet and who you're going to run into. So you always want to put your best foot forwards. And, uh, and then there was another gentleman I met there who would be standing there with a BSA shirt on. Next thing you know, he's in the motorcycle, but he's in the cool cars. And he's the gentleman I just mentioned that was uh, putting a coyote motor, coyote motor in his uh, Ford truck. So, but Quaker Steak and Lube is pretty cool. You know, Biffberger, those are our local hangouts, you know, for some of you guys. And uh, obviously DuPont Registry, Demet Cars and Coffee and, uh, you know. All kinds of stuff going on. So definitely get out there and drive your car and have fun with it, all right? On that note, I think we're going to fire up the stereo system. Did I even pick a song for the first one? I did? Oh, is this a little Neil Young? Bingo! Wow, you know what? Let's do a little uh, contemporary vintage Neil Young, since we're on a subject about uh, driving and riding. How about, uh, what's the name of this one? Let It Ride? Is that the name of this one? I think it's Live to Ride. Live to Ride. All right. Hey, here's a little Neil Young. In fact, I think he's a motorcycle guy, too, besides a car guy, and he wrote just uh, about riding bikes. Hey, you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Don't touch that dial. We will be right back.
Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kurt, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. Okay, we're back. Yes, we are, and you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Yeah, I am your show host. Um, yeah, so we're talking a little bit about uh, some of the cars up there at uh, at uh, Quaker State and Lube. Of course, I affectionately refer to them as Goobers and Lubers. And uh, but you know what? Occasionally, you get some pretty cool cars that show up in there. You know, the thing about uh, um, oh yeah, what about hey uh, uh, Tommy? Isn't the uh, Fun and Sun thing this weekend? Or is that next weekend? No, yes, this weekend. It this is, week, actually. This whole week? Oh, yeah. So definitely if you want to see some really cool airplanes, go over to the uh, Florida Fun and Sun. As a matter of fact, you know what I should do? Can you cue up the, uh, what's that uh, theme song we have for the, uh, if we're going to do a radio show giveaway? What do we call that thing? Um, you know, the Price is Right thing. We got that theme thing, theme song thing, thingy, thingy. <laughs> so what I think I have access to is a couple tickets to the Florida Fun and Sun fly-in. I think that's what it's called, right? Did I say that right, Tommy? Yeah, okay, he's nodding his head. And uh, so I'm going to come up with a question, and you have to answer the question in order to get the... I forgot. What was the name of that again? Uh, wasn't the prices right? Is that what it was? Yeah, something like that. Uh, see, we're, this is the beauty of radio. Oh, I just stepped on my cord and almost pulled my ear out of my head. This is the beauty of radio because we can wing it here. We have the flexibility to do it on the fly, as they say, you know. And uh, so obviously it's live. It's not pre-recorded. <laughs> okay, okay. So uh, here was a question that uh, I was trying to think of this the other day, and it's automotive related. And um, what car, what car... No, actually, there was two cars of that. There was a number of cars that had it. But I'm going to use this one. What car out of the 50s, and I'm going to give you the biggest hint right now as possible, that began with an M, M, okay, had push-button transmission? What car in the 50s? Man, I just narrowed it down for you. I gave you two huge clues. If you know the number, give us a call here at the studio, 727-441-3000. That's 727-441-3000. One, if you're out of the range, 1-866-826-1340. 1-866-826-1340. Yeah, I guess you could Google it. You know, you're going to do it regardless of whether I tell you not to or not. But at any rate, so there was a car in the 50s that began with an M, and I see the phones lit up, and it had a push-button transmission and uh, so here we go, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I always get a kick out of this. Um, i got to come up with something a little bit more complicated. But, hey, I came up with this on the fly, so I'm doing pretty good. we got a guest on the line that thinks he knows the answer? Yeah, I think it's a first-time caller, first-time listener. Uh-oh. Let me see. Who, let's see who's disguising their voice this time. All right, listener. You got the, uh, you know the answer? Yeah, was it the Malibu? No, no. Mustang? No. No, that's two strikes. One more. 
Uh, I don't know. 50s. In the 50s. In the 50s. Uh, now, okay. a Malibu would have been 60s, and a Mustang would have been 60s. Now, I'm not going to give that the answer yet, so if anybody knows, what car in okay. the 50s... You yep. Nice try there, Radio Rob. Thanks for calling in, though. I appreciate it. And keep on yeah. listening. Thanks, Robert. <laughs> Good job there, Tommy. I like that one. Uh, what car out of the 50s begins with an M had a push-button transmission? And don't say Etzel, because Etzel begins with an E, okay? But there was a lot of cars back then that actually did that. It wasn't like that was a new thing. It's just that uh, Etzel had it in the middle of the steering column. It was called Teletouch. But anyway, all right, so you got three minutes to come up with an answer. In the meantime, uh, let's see. What are we talking about? Okay, so cars, cool cars. But anyway, hey, so I think what we'll do is we'll go ahead and fire up the stereo again, and let's get our guests on the line because I'm really excited about talking about this thing because the Florida Roadside Attractions is pretty cool. But I just want to get into to other things that are kind of like related to that. So we're kind of our theme tonight is, you know, is the car thing and driving and riding and, and all that kind of cool stuff. So um, this next song that we got is... One of my favorites out of the 60s, Buffalo Springfield. And I believe Neil Young used to be a member of Neil of uh, Buffalo Springfield. So, uh, hey, you're tuning in to Nostalgia Creating Cars. Don't touch that dial. We will be right back with our special guest for the evening. Exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down There's battle lines being drawn Nobody's right if everybody's wrong Young people speak in their minds Getting so much resistance from behind Time we stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going Well, like I told Max here, I was trying to get my gun. What were you doing, Bezavaya? Well, like I told Max, I was trying to cut my way through your wire because I want to get out. You speak German? Jawohl, Herr Oberst. Why are cutters? Jawohl, Herr Oberst. I have had the pleasure of knowing quite a number of British officers in this war. And I flatter myself that we understand one another. You are the first American officer I've met. Hills, isn't it? Captain Hills, actually. 17 escape attempts. 18, sir. Tunnelman, engineer. Flyer. I suppose what's called in the American Army a hotshot pilot. Uh -huh. Unfortunately, you were shot down anyway. So we are both grounded for the duration of the war. Well, you speak for yourself, Colonel. You have other plans. I haven't seen Berlin yet, from the ground or from the air, and I plan on doing both before the war is over. Are all American officers so ill-mannered? About yeah, 99%. Then perhaps while you are with us, you will have a chance to learn some. Ten days isolation hills. Captain Hills. Twenty days. Right. Oh, uh, you'll still be here when I get out. Cooler. 
This is Neil Young. You're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back, and you tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. Gentleman's been on our show a number of times. He's an alumni guest, and I'm delighted to welcome back the communications director and track historian for Sebring International Raceway, my friend Ken Breslauer. Ken, how you doing? Great. Thanks for having me on. Super. Well, finally we get a chance to talk about this book, and uh, it kind of caught my attention as well as a lot of other people. I grew up in the motel business, okay, so we traveled a lot. So this 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 uh, book that you got, you know, the uh, Roadside Attractions Before Disney is kind of special to me, too, because I moved to Florida in 71, but I was actually here the first time in 68. So why don't you elaborate on the book a little bit? Sure, happy to. Uh, the name of the book is Florida Roadside Attractions History. The Complete Guide to Florida Tourist Attractions Before Disney. Uh, what it is is a, a tour through pre-Disney Florida and the many attractions uh, that existed back then. Uh, a lot of familiar names and a lot of uh, kind of forgotten names in uh, tourist attraction history. But it's, uh, it's a 208-page all-color book. Uh, it's illustrated with some really great uh, photos from the early days. So... Uh, I, I acquired a lot of slides on eBay over the last 20 years, and <laughs> I finally got a place to put them, and it's, uh, it's really, the book's been really well received and uh, brought back a lot of memories for a lot of people. How did the, what, was the, what, what was your inspiration for the book? I mean, now, you grew up on the East Coast, so you're basically, are you a native Floridian? Yep, yep. I grew up in Delray Beach in Boynton Beach, Florida. Um, went to college at the University of West Florida in Pensacola. I've actually lived all over the state. But uh, when I got my graduate degree, uh, my thesis uh, was on uh, Florida roadside attractions, uh, preser- preserving them, how to preserve them. And it came out uh, about a year before Cypress Gardens closed. And then when that happened, all of a sudden, a lot of people sat up and took notice uh, about this uh, industry and how a lot of the old school attractions were fading away and a lot of things were being lost. So uh, a lot of the attractions uh, have been saved, thankfully, as state parks and city parks and so forth. But uh, that kind of inspired me to do a little more research, and uh, that resulted in the book. Take us through some. Of the, take us through the book. I mean, how is the book laid out? Is there like a sequence of events? In other words, when these these roadside attractions originated, and then when they unfortunately um, you know went away. Or are they random? Or tell us a little bit about how the how the book's organized. Well, the book starts off actually with a discussion of the roadways in Florida and how they evolved, because a lot of people kind of blame Disney for the demise of the uh, attractions industry, uh, at least the smaller attractions. Uh, Disney opened in 1971, but really what uh, what changed everything was the evolution of highways in Florida, interstate highways, uh, the Florida Turnpike. Uh, that's really what killed off attractions to a great extent. Uh, people no longer took the back roads. Uh, they wanted to take the expressways, and, and that's you know been seen all over the country. So that was really the, the, the prime reason for the, the beginning of the end, if you will. Uh, Charles Corralt has a, a great quote. Uh, he said, thanks to the interstate highway system, it is now possible to drive from coast to coast without seeing anything. <laughs> and that's sort of, you know, what really changed everything. But uh, after the discussion of the roadways, we, we basically just did a, we call it Attractions A to Z, and we have uh, about 150 attractions discussed in alphabetical order, starting with uh, Africa, USA, and Boca Raton, and going on 
through. And again, these are attractions that opened prior to the uh, opening of Disney World in 1971. You know, some go back to the 1800s, like Silver Springs and the St. Augustine Alligator Farm, and, and others are open more recently. But uh, the, the, uh, the whole point of the book was just to preserve the, the memories of uh, Flores Roadside uh, before Disney opened. What are some of the significant uh, roadside attractions in Florida? I mean, obviously Cypress Gardens is one of them, naturally. Um, and then the- yeah, the, the Cypress Gardens and Silver Springs were the, the big two, if you will. They they pretty much battled for, for supremacy in the uh, Florida tourism industry before Disney. Uh, Silver Springs and Ocala, of course, uh, is now a state park, and Cypress Gardens is now Legoland. Uh, But those two attractions were absolutely the kings of tourism uh, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Other really significant ones, of course, were Marineland, south of St. Augustine, uh, Bach Tower Gardens, uh, Wikiwachi, Sunken Gardens. Um, Those were the major ones, uh, but there have been hundreds of others, of course. Where did uh, um, the last time I had you on the show, I played a little clip because I found uh, a little thing on tourism, but St. Petersburg kind of got the nickname, two nicknames, one because of Johnny Carson, Wrinkle City, but the other (laughs) one that they got, which you used to joke around on the Tonight Show all the time, but the other one was uh, Shuffleboard Capital of the World, you know, and um, uh, does that ring a bell to you? I mean, did you hear anything? Well, yeah, I I lived in St. Petersburg for 30 years. So okay. Very, very familiar with that. Um, St. Petersburg has a, a really interesting history as far as tourism goes. Uh, as you said, it was one of the first cities really marketed for the elderly people back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and even 50s. Of course, you know that's that's totally changed now. But uh, the St. Petersburg Shuffleboard Court, uh, which is the oldest shuffleboard club in the United States, uh, had I think up over 10,000 members at one time. Went down to the hundreds, and now has made a great resurgence uh, uh, in the last few years. And um, it's, it's become an in-sport again in St. Petersburg, and I'm really happy to see that the, the shuffleboard courts uh, at Mirror Lake are, are a historic landmark, and uh, it's really a, a great thing they've been preserved. But St. Petersburg was the site of many interesting attractions. Uh, I mentioned Sunken Gardens. Uh, which is now owned by the city, but was a very prominent uh, attraction. Still, is a great place to go. Um, and then other, you know, in, in the Tampa Bay area, there's been many great attractions. Uh, and of course, um, Wikiwachi up in Brooksville is a legendary attraction. Um, Homosassa Springs, Bush Gardens, more of a recent attraction, a corporate theme park, but that dates back to 1959. So there's a lot of uh, interesting history in that area. And one of the forgotten attractions in St. Pete was the Aquatarium, which was a, a beautiful uh, attraction on St. Pete Beach. Opened in 1964 and closed in 1980, but it was one of the most significant marine attractions in the state. Uh, but that's long gone and now condos, which is sort of the story of uh, some of the other attractions. Well, now, in South Florida, I remember in the, in the late 60s when we were down in Miami, didn't they have a marine land down there someplace, or Florida land yeah. or something? Yeah, they have the, the Seaquarium. Okay, um, that's what it which was. opened in 1955 and is still uh, going strong. That's out on Key Biscayne. Okay. Uh, and then Fort Lauderdale had Ocean World and then Alamorada Theater of the Sea, which still is uh, going strong. Uh, they opened in 1946. They're one of the few attractions still owned by the same family. Okay. What else on the East Coast is uh, was pretty famous um, from your neck of the woods, so to speak? Well, uh, McKee Jungle Gardens in Vero Beach uh, was a, a really big attraction, opened in 1931. Kind of an interesting story there. It, uh, it closed in 1976, uh, was partially developed as condominiums, and then uh, about 15 years ago, uh, a bunch of people very interested in that property uh, formed a nonprofit uh, organization and saved the remaining uh, few acres and have restored it and brought it back to its full glory. They still have the original entrance building and um, they've restored a, a great deal of the gardens. So it's now uh, McKee Botanical Gardens and uh, still exists um, in, in Palm Beach County. One of the, the most interesting attractions uh, was in Boca Raton. Uh, opened in 1953, it was called Africa USA. 
And it was important because it was one of the first attractions uh, anywhere that had a cageless zoo, if you will. All the animals roamed free, and you would ride trams through the, the areas where the animals were. Um, and, of course, that's been imitated now by Lion Country Safari in West Palm Beach. Uh, oh. But Africa, USA, uh, it only lasted eight years. It closed in 1961. And it's uh, it was on US-1 in the area of Camino Gardens. And uh, there are still a few remnants, uh, you know, there. But basically, uh, that, that attraction really opened the door to uh, more natural, you know, cageless attractions. Uh, and is really, you know, significant in the history of our state. Uh, of course, down in Miami, there's been many great attractions. Uh, Parrot Jungle and Monkey Jungle, two really great attractions. Uh, Monkey Jungle still exists. It opened in 1935. Parrot Jungle, the, the attraction itself closed um, about 10 years ago, but the site still exists. It's now the city of Pinecrest. Uh, it's called uh, Pinecrest Gardens, and it's fantastic uh, uh, gardens. It, it basically is just like Parrot Jungle was, just without the parrot. And it's uh, beautifully uh, maintained. It's uh, really worth a visit if you're in the uh, South Miami area. But uh, there's been, you know, many, many others on the East Coast. Um, a lot of them, you know, hardly remembered. Um, but uh, some of the, the more significant ones, you know, entering the state back in the 40s and 50s would be, uh, you know, Silver Springs, Rainbow Springs, Wikiwachi Springs. The spring attractions were really, really big. And fortunately, most of those still exist as state parks. The uh, What about the Keys? Was there stuff, roadside attractions down there? Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, as I mentioned, Theater of the Sea, which uh, is uh, near Almorada, Okay. Uh, opened in 1946. Now, they had uh, really heavy damage from Hurricane Irma, uh, but they are back open and uh, doing pretty well. There have been some uh, smaller attractions in the Keys over the years. Um, and then, of course, in Key West itself is the Key West Aquarium, which is really a municipal attraction. It's not a, a private attraction, per se. Um, but uh, that, that Theater of the Sea is really... Uh, you know, one of the oldest and, and most successful attractions in that area. What about over, because uh, you said you mentioned West Florida, so that's Pensacola, so you're talking about Escambia County out there. How about going over that direction? What's uh, What was kind of cool over there? And that's a very scenic area. People just don't realize how pretty um, northwest uh, Florida is. It's nice up there. It is. It's very nice. Uh, you, you don't know you're in Florida there a lot. We called it L.A. when I was in college, <laughs> lower Alabama. <laughs> but uh, the, the Gulf Arium... Um, is a major marine attraction uh, in that area. And, of course, Panama City is, has been famous for um, more of an amusement park-type attraction. There's been a couple books written about that, you know, the Miracle Strip. Uh, there's, you know, everything ranging from Goofy Golf to Jungle Land and uh, Snakeatorium. There's all, all kinds of interesting little attractions up that way. Uh, up, up in Tallahassee, uh, Wakulla Springs, uh, mm-hmm. which is a state park, is a really, really great place to visit. Uh, the historic lodge is still there, and you can still stay there. Um, you know, all parts of Florida have had some really cool attractions over the years. Uh, a lot of the smaller ones, of course, have faded away, but uh, fortunately, uh, a lot of the garden attractions and spring attractions have been preserved as parks, so you can still... Uh, see remnants of uh, the glory days. You know, for example, the the Mermaid Show still exists at Wikiwachi, even though it's it's a state park now. And mm-hmm. the, the glass bottom boats of Silver Springs uh, still exist at uh, Silver Springs, and uh, highly recommend that if you're ever in the Ocala area. How about you know if you stop and think about it, you know, like you have the the, the four corridors that go north. Basically, you've got U.S. nineteen, you got twenty seven, you got three hundred one, and then basically U.S. one. They all go north south, running. And you know, back in the day, I mean, you had like a Stuckey's, or you know, even before then, you had the you know these little roadside little restaurants and cafes and stuff like that. How much of those uh, how uh, do those still exist? Oh, the, the mom and pop. Uh you know, restaurants and motels have, have all but disappeared. Uh, that That's a really interesting part of Florida history, and it were affected the same way attractions were by the 
uh, opening of interstates. You, know, you you pegged it exactly right by mentioning those four north-south roads. Um, you know, at one time there were eight uh, Florida welcome stations at the uh, the uh, Florida Georgia border and the Alabama Florida border, and they were all on these state roads, like you know, forty-one and nineteen and twenty-seven, which you know was known as the Orange Blossom Trail. And of course, those are all gone now. And and what you have now are the uh, the welcome centers uh, on the interstate entrances of you know I seventy-five, I ninety-five. Um, so it just shows you how the you know, traffic patterns have changed. But you know, as you said, the 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 mom and pop restaurants, uh, you know kind of fell wayside to chains. Uh, same with motels, really. The, the chains took over, and uh, a lot of the motels are gone now. Um, yeah, it, it's just, again, emblematic of, of the elev- the evolution of uh, traffic patterns and, and how people travel now. And uh, your bio, I was reading also that um, you're into architecture, and I, was that specifically antique architecture and, and stuff? Is it specifically about the St. Petersburg area, or is it uh, an era like Art Deco, or uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, my one of my books, uh, Florida books, was uh, the historic architecture and historic sites of St. Petersburg, Florida, which, which covered the gamut. Um, you know, St. Petersburg has a, a fantastic... Uh, range of architecture, especially the 1920s boom era architecture, you know, old, old Spanish, you know, Mediterranean revival architecture. Uh, but there's a little bit of everything in St. Pete, and, and one of the beauties of St. Petersburg is the fantastic neighborhoods um, and the great architecture, you, you know, everything from, you know, Old Northeast, uh, which has a great variety of historic homes. Uh, you have uh, Driftwood, uh, Pink Streets. Uh, Granada Terrace, Snell Isle. There's just so many cool neighborhoods uh, that uh, St. Petersburg is really a gem as far as the city goes. If you had to pick another state and or another city in the state that's comparable to St. Petersburg that kind of offers the same type of uh, culture, let's say, which uh, which city would comes to mind? That's that's kind of hard to say. I mean, you in terms of architecture and, and variety. Uh, you know, there's places like Coral Gables near Miami that has just some fantastic architecture. I know Tampa has uh, some really cool historic neighborhoods, Jacksonville. Uh, of course, St. Augustine has some oh, yes. uh, great architecture as well, though really, you know, not so much residential, but, you know, other historic sites. Um, and West Palm Beach, you know, where I live now, has uh, 17 historic districts uh, and uh, some really, really uh, varied neighborhoods. So, uh Florida's got some really cool history and uh, a really amazing roadside history. Being, you know, tourism being the biggest industry, it, it's got a, a lot of great history in that regard. Interesting. Now, you are the historian for Sebring International Raceway, and you've written a number of books, and there's so much of this stuff. So I kind of wanted to go back into now, we, Sebring is basically considered the oldest sanctioned racetrack in the United States, correct? Well, it's the oldest sports car racing track in the okay. U.S., um, and uh, our first race was in uh, December of 1950, and um, our, we've run continuously since then, and uh, Sebring's history is, is pretty amazing. Of course, it began in 1941 as a B-17 uh, training base, combat crew training base. It was called Hendricks Field, and from 1941 to 1946, uh, it operated as a United States Army Air Force Base, uh, became a municipal airport, and then uh, was used for racing. And then the racetrack evolved and is now a separate entity from the airport. But uh, the history, Sebring's history, is, is really remarkable. There's very few tracks in North America uh, that really have a, a more significant history. Obviously, Indianapolis is the oval track, has a fantastic history. Um, but Sebring, uh, in terms of international history, certainly is uh, one of the best. In the state of Florida, you know, because back then, you know, a lot of the military guys came back to the United States from the war. They Sports car racing was kind of like uh, a growing sport back then. Name some of the other racetracks around, and, and there were a lot of them were on military bases, because what people don't realize, there was a lot of bases in the state of Florida, and that's where, uh, through the the... the Graciousness of Colonel LeMay, you know, we uh, sports car racing kind of took off in the United States, right? That, that absolutely. In fact, uh, some of the most significant races in the early 50s uh, occurred at McDill Air Force Base in Tampa. Um, the uh, 
uh, Boca Raton Airfield, which was a uh, you know, World War II base that is now where Fort Atlantic University is, uh, had several major sports car races through the 50s. Uh, Fort Pierce Airport, uh, Vero Beach Airport, um, Punta Gorda. <laughs> there were so many of the, the uh, road courses held or, or road races held in airports in the early 50s. And as you said, that was the idea of uh, General Curtis LeMay uh, and the Strategic Air Command um, of holding these races. And, uh, you know, really the probably the biggest of all of them was at McDill Air Force Base in 1953 and 54. So there's a lot of uh, history uh, in Florida in the early 50s as far as sports car racing. That's interesting. So McDill actually had a... So if you had to compare Sebring and McDill, give us a kind of a quick comparison. In terms well, of a racing event, well, it's kind of interesting because the first twelve hours of Sebring was in March 1952, and it was sanctioned by the American Automobile Association, you know, which is the same AAA that does your towing now. <laughs> uh, they sanctioned auto racing up through the mid 50s, and uh, the Sports Car Club of America was kind of a rival to them, so they held a 12-hour race at the Vero Beach Airport the weekend before the 12 hours in Sebring, an attempt to kind of upstage them. Uh, so that didn't go over too good. So what they decided to do the following year is have a race at McDill Air Force Base about three weeks before Sebring. Uh, again, it was an SCCA event, which would be technically amateur event, but the they had a six-hour race in McDill, and it was a very, very significant race. I mean, I think Briggs Cunningham's team won the event, um, but it was very, very well subscribed, very well promoted, very well attended. They did it again in 1954, uh, roughly the same time, I believe it was in February. And uh, then, of course, the uh, the whole Strategic Air Command support of it went away. The, uh, the purpose of the events was to uh, raise money for the living quarters, and I guess it turned out that uh, that wasn't happening, at least the, in the amount that people thought, so that that ended. But uh, those two years, uh, McDill and Sebring were almost in competition with each other. Interesting, interesting. So if somebody wanted to find out more information about uh, that, let's just say specifically about uh, history on McDill, how would they go about doing that, Ken? Well, there, there's a, a couple books about that era um, that I'm sure you can find online that, that cover that, the early era of SCCA racing. Um also, there's, there's, there's some really good resources. There's the uh, International Motorsports Library in Watkins Glen, New York. Uh, and then in Naples, Florida, is the, uh, the Collier Archives, which is a fantastic sports car racing archives uh, that's part of the Collier Museum. Um, I believe both of those uh, are happy to do uh, research, and you, you can use their facilities if you make an appointment. But... Um, two good resources for uh, that era of racing. Interesting. Now, you've written a number of books, a lot of it on racing, but some other topics as well. We've got a few minutes left, a couple minutes. Why don't you share some of this, the titles to some of your other books and where people can find out more about them? Well, uh, I, the, the Florida Roadside Attractions History book, uh, I have a really, really interesting follow-up to that which is the history of the Florida souvenir industry. Oh. Um, and that's going to be out in a few months, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. It, it covers the, 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 the souvenir industry before Disney, um, and, you know, pennants, decals, and, and all kinds of fun stuff that people used to buy. It, it goes back and you know, traces the history of all these types of souvenirs. And uh, also, uh, you mentioned motels. And uh, I have a book coming out on uh, the Florida motels uh, of that era. Um, oh wow! Put together some really, you know, great information on that. Um, so that's that's two titles coming up. Most of my other books have been about Sebring. So uh, if you ever want to uh, read about Sebring, uh, I've got a couple of books out that you can find online. Uh, Sebring: The Official History of America's Greatest Sports Car Race. And also uh, Sebring, the official record book, which is more of a statistical history of the race. Uh, and we, in fact, have a revised edition of that coming out uh, in October or November of this year. So uh, lots of uh, racing and uh, roadside. That's uh, my interest. Interesting. Now, you, you have a journalism background. So you, you, you used to be a sports writer, too, I was reading? 
Yeah, my first job out of college was I was a sports writer for the uh, Pensacola News Journal up in Pensacola, back when they had both a morning and afternoon paper. Uh, it shows you how old I am. <laughs> and uh, uh, I worked there for uh, three years, and then I went to work for Sebring Raceway, and I've been there for 34 years. So was your interest always in motorsports, or did you cover other sports as well? Well, yeah, I covered all sports. In fact, uh, being the kind of the low man on the totem pole there, I, I did a lot of uh, high school sports. Uh, so I traveled all over the panhandle to places uh, that I never had heard of at that time and got to cover a lot of great sports events and meet a lot of great people. However, my editor, Jack Flowers, uh, who was a big uh, racing enthusiast, uh, sent me to uh, Talladega, and Daytona and the Sebring, and although I was already interested in motorsports, that really uh, piqued my interest, if you will, and I, I got to uh, cover some really uh, great NASCAR races of that era as well. Interesting, interesting. Well, we're about up against the clock, but i got to ask you this one quick question. Are you into cars? Do you collect cars? Do you drive any old cars, or are you just uh, uh, just uh, just drive an everyday car? <laughs> well, I have, an, I have an everyday car, although I have to say that uh, I've always been a Mazda rotary engine enthusiast, and uh, about 20 years ago, I purchased uh, a, a relatively well-known Mazda in the racing world. It was the car and driver Mazda RX-2 that uh, terrorized the road racing world uh, back in the late 70s, and I uh, purchased the car with the hopes of restoring it and going vintage racing, and uh, then the realities of time and money hit, <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, a well-known Mazda race car driver by the name of Jim Downing bought it for me and restored it, and then Mazda bought it, and it's part of their museum. Uh, but I've always had a liking to RX2, RX3s, RX7s, uh, which, you know, I, I grew up with uh, that era of car, and I, I had an RX2 for many years. Um, but uh, as far as uh, that goes, that's pretty much the extent of it. Okay. Well, Ken, I want to thank you very much. Hey, listen, I definitely want to have you come back on again sometime, and then we'll talk about some of your other books. In the meantime, Ken, thank you a lot. Now I know what you do in your spare time when you're not at Sebring. Hey, I want to thank my special guest, Ken Breslauer, the uh, communication director and track historian for Sebring and author. So definitely check out his books. Ken, you take care. I will see you. you too at uh, some of the future events. In the meantime, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Don't forget to check out some of the races, some of the car shows, Fun and Sun, uh, all this stuff. Hey, check out our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com. You can find out all about us and what we're up to. Don't forget to check out FLACarshows.com. And tune in every Tuesday night here on the Town Talk Radio Network for the most legendary and fascinating names in motorsports right here on the Town Talk Radio Network. Again, Tommy, we'll see you. Everybody stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.